0: Today we come to part of the climax of the life of Abraham. I would suppose the the greatest climax is next time, our intent to see the sacrifice of Isaac in chapter 22, but the birth of Isaac in chapter 21 of Genesis is certainly climactic in terms of a fulfillment of things that have been prophesied and waited for now as we've studied this ancient man's life beginning at Genesis 12 onwards. Now, you realize I have skipped over some chapters. I'm not primarily interested in the very solemn and terrible events of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and other things that have happened as we want to just keep the spotlight on Abraham. But I'm going to read two substantial passages, the section of Genesis 21 through verse 21, and then go to Galatians in the New Testament and read, a part there that interprets Galatians 4 that has an interpretive value in looking on this text. So listen to two places from God's holy word. First, Genesis 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave, him, gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded, and Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham, That Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son, Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring." Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and, and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes, and she went off and sat down nearby about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said, "'What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift him up, take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation.' And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy, As he grew up, he lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. Now jump all the way over with me to the New Testament book of Galatians and the Apostle Paul in the midst of an argument with people who opposed the gospel of the cross and of God's grace. And here is Paul in a rather argumentative mood as the Holy Spirit is speaking through him. Galatians 4, beginning at 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. These things may be taken figuratively. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And this is God's holy word. Have you ever experienced praying for something that was quite important? might have been for example praying for the salvation of someone who didn't know Christ someone close to you as a family member or a friend and you prayed earnestly and sincerely for a while nothing seemed to happen right away and you didn't actually notice that over the years that passed maybe the next 15 years or something that person was gradually turning and in fact came to faith in Christ But the years that did pass had dulled your sense of a clear connection between what you prayed and what God brought about in that life, and so perhaps you just shrugged and you said, oh, yes, that person became a Christian, and you didn't even think about it as God's answer to prayer. We have notoriously short attention spans, and that's a big problem when it comes to to walking by faith with the Lord. We often can't get out of our own circle of self-interest long enough to have any kind of wide-eyed wonder or amazement at the big-picture things that God is doing in our lives and the lives of people around us. Genesis 21 is, is really a climax. It brings this tremendous event of fulfillment to the prophecy that Abraham and Sarah, the aged couple, 90-year-old wife, 100-year-old husband, would have a child. Born in one sense in the natural way, and yet there's a miracle involved, of course, because natural means alone would never have allowed this child to be born. The span between the earliest promises that something like this would happen and it happening is almost 25 years in the lives of these people. Plenty of time to have, you know, when they thought 25 years earlier the Lord said you're going to have a son, they thought, oh, wow, great, amazing, how's that going to happen? But by the time 20, 22, 23, 25 years have gone by, they've lost, they've dulled that sense of connectivity of the promise of God to a wonder that now finally takes place. We are told here that not only are these boys two real boys, Isaac, the son of promise, and Ishmael, notice he's not even actually named in Genesis 21, he's just called the child or the son, but it's Ishmael who's Hagar's son, the natural son that Abraham had by doing things his own way. And Paul, writing in Galatians, tells us that these people, although they were real, flesh and blood, historic people, are also people that may be thought about figuratively or allegorically as as representing great realities. And I hope for you to see that today. It's why I needed to read both of those passages. One young man, Isaac, by the way, had been given his name before by God, In a previous chapter, the Lord had revealed that the child's name should be Isaac, laughter. And he represents clinging to and waiting for the promises of God and what God alone does. Ishmael represents the futility, ultimately, of all human works to accomplish God's purposes. Now, the whole subject of laughter is so interesting, how it's a thread running through these these chapters, because you can recall Sarah laughing the last time we looked, in doubt, in disbelief. Huh? Are you kidding? Me have a child? We don't know how it sounded when Sarah laughed, and in fact, it may not have even been that audible. I suggested to you last time that it it sounds like the text in chapter 18 was telling us that Sarah laughed very quietly within herself, but the divine messenger heard it and understood it and said, oh yes, you laughed all right, and it was sarcastic. You didn't believe that God was doing it. Now we find her laughing in a whole different way, a laugh of absolute delight and great pleasure. The key question I'm going to want to bring you to this morning that our text brings us to is to ask, are we... As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who have clung to the promise that God would bring a great son who would make a difference, are we laughing with the delight and pleasure and satisfaction of those who've seen God's promises fulfilled? Or is it possible that we might even be like Ishmael and harbor some amount of disdain for the plans of God? First of all, today in the first seven verses of Genesis 21, I want you to to learn here that laughter at Isaac's birth shows us that God's promises are intended to bring holy delight to God's believing people. Now, we can honestly say that aside from the birth of Jesus Christ himself, there's probably no birth in the Bible predicted and awaited and then greeted with a greater jubilee of rejoicing than the birth of Isaac. I can't… The birth of John the Baptist was pretty special, a few others perhaps, but other than Christ himself, this birth is one of the great moments. You know, if you think baby showers are ever a big deal, well, this was one of the biggest baby showers in all of the Bible. The mysterious messenger from God in chapter 18, we saw a couple weeks ago, had said, at this time next year I will return and Sarah will give birth. What's the first words of chapter 21? The Lord was gracious and did for her what He had promised. God's divine intervention brought her womb alive and allowed her to conceive this child. God stood by His Word. And here was a 90-year-old woman who in in our terminology, would have been greeting great-grandchildren. You ladies have to try to visualize this, being 90 years old and never having had a child and giving birth. What would that be like when you uh, would think of your granddaughters would be bringing their children to you? You have a first child. Sarah is carried away in delight and in joy the lord was gracious and did what he promised you know the image of childbirth appears other ways in the bible john 16:21 has the words of jesus when jesus was using an illustration there and he said one time a woman giving birth has her pain when her time is come but when her baby is born she forgets that anguish when and because of her joy that the child is born into the world I can remember an instance in our lives when our son Paul was being born in 1973, and Carol was in the hospital for us. It was a second child, so we knew the ropes a little bit and knew what to expect. But uh, across the hall in the other labor room was a young woman who was having her first child. And Carol will remember, along with me, the cries of anguish that came out into the hallway and all down the wing from that young woman, and they, they were indeed... Uh, hard to hear. She was in great pain. She was crying out, screaming. You know, we were just horrified at what she must have been going through. And yet this, that woman ended up being Carol's roommate the next day, both of them with their babies in arms. There she was, wreathed in smiles, all happy. And if I had asked her about, didn't you have a rough time yesterday? I. I she probably would have said, yeah, it was pretty hard. But That wasn't what she was expressing. She was nothing but but joy and happiness and rejoicing in her firstborn child. A delirious kind of thankfulness filled this tent of Sarah. The neighbors were coming in. I suppose they brought gifts. They came to see the newborn. Can you imagine the word spreading out among the herdsmen and the servants and the, the other tribesmen? Sarah is a mother. Everybody would have come to see that to just see with their own eyes that this child was real. And the greetings, the exclamations would have all been at a high pitch. I think sometimes we think of God's fulfillment of prophecy as just kind of almost like a, a mathematical formula or an algebra formula. You know, A plus B equals C. A is the promise of God. B is my faith equals C, fulfillment. Just a cold thing written out that way. God's promises coming true are never mathematical or cold. They are wrapped as blessings in goodness and in the personal grace in which he does things. They come to people who should be waiting in anticipation, although they rarely are, for God's promises like children would wait for a trip to the circus, let's say. You tell a child on Monday. You don't want to do this on Monday. We're going to the circus on Saturday. You know what you'll hear? Is today the day we're going to the circus? Is today the day we're going to the circus? Will I see elephants? Will there be clowns? Every day there's going to be tremendous anticipation until the circus. That's the way we should be with the promises of God because they are blessings. They are God's intention to do us good. By his own goodness and grace. But oh, how we do wait for those things. You know, we wait the way I imagine the old railroad station master uh, back in the days when everybody traveled by trains and took great pride that the trains were on time. You know, I suppose there was a station master here in in Lancaster, and maybe uh, some morning he would go out to the platform and peer down the tracks and pull out his big pocket watch and say, why the eight ten 10 train from Philadelphia to Harrisburg is 15 minutes late. I think that's what we're more like as we await the promises of God, aren't we? We're looking at our self-imposed schedules and saying, God, you said you'd do this for me. You said you'd you'd subdue my, my lust. You said you would... Change me so I didn't have that temptation wearing at me all the time. You said you'd make me a more meek and humble person as I grew in Christ. It doesn't seem like it's happening. You're late, God. Why aren't you doing things? Why aren't these things happening? I'm holding my watch, and I'm saying, God, get it done, will you? And by our self-imposed schedules, God isn't seeming to get things done. Why can we not wait with that excitement of the child waiting for the circus, and yet that contentment that says, it is God who has made a promise. It is God in all his power and goodness who's going to fulfill a promise to do for me what he has said he would do for one who belongs to him in Christ. And I am not going to impose my timing on him because I know that his plans will be for my good, and I'll see them in fullness when he's ready. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, has a bit of wisdom. That little prophet buried in the Old Testament minor prophets has much wisdom. Habakkuk says, although a promise of God lingers, wait for it. It will certainly come and not delay. You see, Habakkuk is saying linger is all in the eyes of the beholder. If it seems to you like God is taking a long time, He's worth waiting for. What he promises will certainly come without delay. Isaac didn't come delayed, even though the promise that led to him was 25 years old. He came in God's perfect moment in these lives. All the things that had happened up till now, Abraham going down to Egypt, lying about his wife, rescuing Lot, doing all these other things, all those things had to happen. And now the time was ready. God's purpose was ripe. We need to learn to trust in a long-term way, as Abraham and Sarah did, that not only the what of God's blessing, but the when of it is known to God, and He knows best. I I love the fact that this child was named by God. Now, some of you know, my daughter-in-law was in the earlier service, so she's not here. You'll all rush out and tell her. But some of you know that We had our last grandchild born, and he got an unusual name. His name is Theophilus Luke. Now, we didn't know this in advance, and my wife called me at 5 in the morning from the hospital where she had been at the delivery. I was just awakening, and she said, he's here, it's a boy, and his name is Theophilus Luke. And here were my words, you're kidding, right? Now, my daughter-in-law doesn't like it that I said that, and I have asked her pardon. I have come to embrace that name, and I love Theo, and I love the fact that he's Theophilus. I love the fact that God named Isaac and revealed to Abraham, name this child Isaac. You know, it was the kind of name that people say, his name is what? Laughter. That's his name, Laughter. Laughter. What? Why didn't you give him a serious name like Frank or Tom or Bob? No, laughter. God was displaying a side of himself, saying, I want this child to represent the delight of people who greet my blessings and smile deeply with pleasure as they receive them. Sarah's words here, God has made me to laugh. And those who see what he's done and hear of it will laugh with me. Should that not be something that we all would say about our Christian lives? God has rescued me from darkness and brought me into life in Jesus Christ. He's put pleasure and satisfaction and peace in my heart. Shouldn't all who see that smile and take pleasure along with me? Well, secondly, we look at the second portion that I read of this text, and it changes quite a bit from verse 8 through 21, Genesis 21, 8 to 21. And some people would say, well, this very positive, joyful first seven verses now suddenly become sort of grim and strange. But they belong together, because here we see Ishmael's mockery showing why precious human-based ideas must step aside to make way for God's best blessings. We call this the expulsion of Ishmael. Something like it had happened before, in chapter 16, before Ishmael was even born. You remember, Sarah had the idea. Abraham, it looks like we're not going to have a child any other way. Take my maidservant. You can have a child with her, and we'll help God out. Well, that happened. Hagar became pregnant. She started flouncing around the tent sort of giving supercilious looks of some kind to her mistress. Sarah didn't, this was a woman thing. I don't know what went on between them, but whatever it was, Sarah didn't like it. And Sarah said, get her out of here. It's all your fault, by the way. She said that. You might know, men, that she would say that. It's all your fault, Abraham. Send her away. Well, that wasn't God's plan. God said, no, Hagar, you go back. I want you to submit. I want you to stop that proud behavior, and submit to your mistress. God wanted her back. What we see now is not simply a repeat of of, uh, chapter 16. It's a little different. It was Sarah again who said, send her out of here, get her son out of here. But this time the difference was she was speaking the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord that the child of flesh only be expelled from the immediate dwelling with Abraham. Not that he be killed, not that he be harmed, in fact, you need to realize that God, as you see in this text, deliberately brought protection, brought water, put a promise of protection on, on uh, Ishmael, but he wanted him to go. Why? Well, it was all about Abraham. Because we can see in this text, Abraham still loved the child of flesh that represented the solution of flesh and not of faith. He said, Can't I hold on to him? He's my son. Of course, he had affection for Ishmael. He didn't want to send him away. But the Lord was saying, Abraham, you've got to choose. It's the man-made substitute or my way. And Abraham had to choose. What did Ishmael do that was so wrong? It's a little hard to read here, but you go into the text in verse 9, and it has to do with laughter again. This little thread of laughter keeps popping up. Sarah saw that the... Son, doesn't even name him, whom Hagar the Egyptian had born, was mocking. The occasion was a party, a celebration for the weaning of Isaac. Now, the cultural patterns tell us that Isaac was probably two or three years old. That was the typical time of a child being weaned from its mother. And so we can theorize that Ishmael was somewhere from 12 to 14. He wasn't a baby, he wasn't a five-year-old, but he wasn't a man either. He was an adolescent, and here he was. He'd been the center of Abraham's attention. Now this little kid is here getting all the attention. Everybody's seeing him as the great thing in the family. What did he do? We don't know. We don't know what he said, but he was mocking somehow his stepbrother. What does a 12-year-old do? Maybe he even cursed Isaac. I don't know. He certainly resented him. He was jealous of him. Somehow he spoke negative things about him. And Sarah understood that attitude and said, this has got to stop. Because in mocking this child of promise, he's mocking God. And God agreed. And so Abraham was forced to choose between a son born by human conniving, human plans, the best I can do, And God's best, the child of faith. You know, without over-spiritualizing, it makes me think how many times the Lord might say to us as we go through our lives and we approach a problem or an issue and we have a way to work it out. In fact, our plan is underway. It's not complete yet, but it looks like maybe, maybe it will work. And somehow we're nudged by the fact of this isn't what God wants. And God is saying to us, don't go that way. That's an improvisation. That's your idea. That's not my plan. Look to me and trust my plan. And we say, no. Well, God, I'd like to trust your plan, but isn't it good to have a plan B? You know, can I hold on? You always got to have a fallback, right? You don't, you know, go on a high, uh, high wire or a, a trapeze in the circus without a net under you. How about plan B, God? Just let me work on my thing while you're delivering. God says, no. You've got to put your plan away. You've got to walk away from it and trust me. Just as we are challenged in the gospel to stop trusting the works of our own way and our own goodness and our own keeping the rules and trust Christ in his righteousness alone, an exclusive commitment. That's what God asked. And notice, too, how his grace, despite the fact that Ishmael and Hagar were cast out, some people think that's very unfair. God protected them. God made Ishmael the head of the Arab nations. Big things going on there internationally for the future. The child born of a human planned act of adultery would be a living, standing opponent to the people of God in Israel for generations and generations and generations to come right to the present day. Now thirdly, we want to leap to Galatians We've got to do this. I'm covering a lot of Scripture here today, but just a few minutes. And see this wonderful insight on how the New Testament interprets this time the Old Testament and does so very deliberately. God's Word is self-interpreting. You know, we say the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. Well, that's really true between these two passages. In the third place today, we discover... With the gospel of Christ set before us, we all are clinging either to Isaac or to Ishmael. Because here's the apostle Paul in Galatians 4 in a feisty, fighting mood. He's fighting with those primarily of a Jewish background. They were called the Judaizers, those who said, Paul, you're not Jewish enough. You're not paying enough attention to the law with all this talk about Christ. And Paul fought back with both fists at least not physically, but with the logic of salvation and the Holy Spirit. And he said, no, I won't hear you calling us back to the law and trusting in our own doings. That is cherishing the child of the slave woman who has to be rejected so we can cherish the child of faith. Paul says it's it's an allegorical or a figurative way of looking back at Abraham. And he says, look, Sarah represents... God's way of redemption, the way that asks people to trust by faith and look to him to do a miraculous work in them. Hagar and Ishmael stand for the human way, the old covenant, which he notes, by the way, that the present-day Jerusalem, in other words, he was saying all of the Jewish people in 426 of Galatians, he says, or 425, Uh, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai, where the law was given and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. That was a very condemning thing Paul said right there. He said the Jewish people, if they are trusting only in the law of Mount Sinai, what they revered above all else, are in slavery. But he as a Jew wanted them to see that they could be God's children of promise by the new work, the wonder work of grace that God would do in their lives and hearts if they would look to Christ as Messiah. He said, any any would-be Christian who thinks you approach God by the law alone is like Abraham trying to hold on to Ishmael. If you're doing that, you have not embraced the child of promise. And so he tells Christians at the end of Galatians 4 there, verse 31, you, brothers, my fellow believers in Christ— You are not children of the slave woman. You are children of the free woman. You are God's true children because you are his by faith. The way of Ishmael is a way that hopes that simply being genealogically connected to Abraham and keeping the law is going to somehow please God. It isn't. The way of Isaac is to be born anew by the Spirit of God. The way of Ishmael means carrying around with you a long list of religious rules. We spoke in a Sunday school class about Jonathan Edwards writing 70 personal resolutions of how he would live his life. Well, let me tell you, if you're living by the way of Ishmael, you've got more like 700 in the list. And you've got to carry the list of 700 every day and go down it and say, how have I done? Have I kept them all today? Because that's what it will take to please God. Ishmael is the do-it-yourself approach, to cling to Isaac, and God's promise is to cling to the wonderful gift of a new birth and of what is undeserved and cannot be humanly performed. Which of those are you choosing? Which of those are you embracing, really? Are you a child of Abraham by Isaac? And by God's wonder-working new birth? Or are you trying to be his child by being good, keeping the rules, living by Mount Sinai and its law? The application we take away here, I hope today, from Genesis 21 and Galatians 4, is to see that Christians as recipients of God's free grace in Christ ought to be, have every reason and right to be, God's joyful thankful, let's say delirious people in our response to him? Can we find in our souls that holy laughter because of Christ that somehow matches the pleasure and the joy of Sarah, who is now laughing with God, not at him? In light of what he has done, The evidence of this joy in his people like you and me should be that which creates to us a great humility, a great sense that we are loaded with privileges we didn't ask for and couldn't deserve, and a great sense of thanksgiving, thanksgiving that would keep pouring itself out to God and saying, I could never thank him enough for the size of the blessing he's delivered to me. Jesus said once in Luke chapter 6, He spoke about the blessings of God to his disciples, and he said, here's how how you can expect God to deliver a blessing. In a good measure, Jesus said, pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured into your lap. In other words, not a stingy blessing, a huge blessing that will knock you down. That's the way God gives. That's the way of his grace. Let me just indulge a little fantasy with you for a moment as I close. What if a Christian could somehow visit the bank of heaven, and we would go to the bank of heaven and say, look, I I understand I have an account here that Jesus opened for me, and that he put some money in it and uh, put some credits in it, not money, but credits of righteousness in my account. Now I'd like to draw them out. Now, I realize it might take you a day or two to, to get together what's in my account, and that's fine. I'm not in a big hurry. I'll, I'll go home. You can let me know tomorrow what you'll deliver. But, you know, if it has monetary value, I, I, I would like it to be delivered in terms of those antique $100 gold pieces they used to have in the United States. That would be good. And so you went home. I know this is all fantastic, but you went home and you expected the amount that had been taken out of the account of what God had credited on your behalf because of Christ. And early the next morning, you heard a rumbling in your driveway, and you looked out, and there was a dump truck. And the dump truck was backed up, and it was, the bed was elevated, and the truck was dumping a, a large overflowing load of $100 gold pieces into a huge heap in, on your driveway, And then it pulled away, and you looked, and here came another truck from that direction. And coming down the other side of the street was another truck. And every time you looked, and you could see as far down the road as you could look, the trucks were coming, and the trucks were coming. Now, I know the blessing of God, of his righteousness credited to us in Jesus, is not translatable to $100 gold pieces. But if it was, let me tell you the trucks would keep coming for the rest of your life. There's no measurement of the size, the generosity, the amazement of what God has credited to us and wants to give us in Jesus Christ. Are his people joyful? Are his people thankful? Do his people understand the way in which amazing grace has worked for us? Are you one who has gotten past that stage of Ishmael life where you mockingly sneer at the purposes of God? If you're still stuck at Ishmael's stage today, I pray for you. I pray that God would bring you, along with Sarah, to know that joy unspeakable and full of glory that says, My God has worked for me. Let all the world laugh as I laugh with pleasure in him. Amen. Our Father, look upon your sober, barely crack a smile Presbyterian people and draw your joy out of us. Father, let our joy be seen. Let it nourish us in our spirit. And let it be something that others would marvel at as they would see the peace of Christ, the pleasure of Christ, the beauty of Christ at work in our lives. Thank you. What a pleasure and privilege it is to be the people of Isaac and not the people of Ishmael. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.